you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke's Gospel. We are continuing in this uh, rather concentrated series in Luke chapter 9. And uh, these are the verses we are considering uh, this morning. Under the heading, who will be the greatest? So this is Luke 9 and verse 46. Disciples are having an argument, a rather contentious one. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he was least among you all. He is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him. Because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. For whoever is not against you is for you. So we look at uh, Luke chapter 9 and these few verses. See what they have to say to us uh, today. All of us, without exception from time to time, have been disappointed in people, all of us. And I suspect that all of us, from time to time, have been a disappointment to people. It's a great leveler. But the higher the esteem that you might hold for somebody, perhaps a parent or somebody in high position within the church or in society or government, the higher the esteem, the greater the disappointment. Sir Jimmy Saville. Postmortems are often terribly unhelpful, particularly when it becomes a moral and ethical pursuit. We all have a tendency to defend ourselves in situations like this by saying something like, you know, I'm not perfect, which is an understatement. I'm not perfect, but, and you could fill in the gap, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't. And you feel better for doing that. Comparing ourselves with lesser people or with people who have had a calamitous fall is not too difficult. We all have a tendency to defend ourselves by saying, I may not be terribly spiritual, but I wouldn't do this and I wouldn't do that. Charles Colson, famous accolade of being the achat man for 
Richard Nixon wrote in a, 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 a fairly substantial book called The Body, which is about the church. Um, and he makes a very stark illustration, which I want to quote to you now in this context. In 1960, Israeli undercover agents orchestrated a very daring kidnapping of one of the masterminds of the Holocaust, Adolf Eichmann from South America, and he was brought to book in Israel. There, prosecutors called a string of former concentration camp prisoners as witnesses. And they were brought in the course of time, one of whom was a rather demure, haggard-looking man by the name of Yael Dinur. He had miraculously escaped death in Auschwitz. And on the day, just think about this, on the day to testify, Denure entered the courtroom and stared at the man behind the bulletproof glass. The man who murdered Denure's friends personally executed a number of Jews himself and orchestrated the slaughter of millions more. As the eyes of the two met, Dineur and Eichmann, the court is silent. Victim and murderous tyrant as the courtroom fell silent, filled with a sense of tension of this confrontation, something happened that was most unexpected. Yale Dinur began to shout and sob and collapsed on the floor. And people asked, was he overcome by hatred? Was he consumed by horrific memories that haunted him? or by the evil incarnate of Eichmann face to face. None of those. None of those. And as he explained later in a 60-minute interview with the television, it was because Eichmann was none of these demonic personification that he thought he would be, Rather, as far as Denure was concerned, in one instant, one instant, Denure came to the stunning realization, after all those years, that sin and evil are the human condition. Quote, I was afraid about myself, Denure said. Quote, again, I saw I was capable to do this like he. Now, you may be shocked by that and you may question that. Then something happened. This remarkable statement caused the interviewer to turn the camera on the audience in Israel and ask the audience the most painful of all questions, and it's this. How was it possible for a man to act as Eichmann acted. Was he a monster? A madman? 
Or was he perhaps something even, even more terrifying? Was he normal? Was he normal? And as far as Yael Dinur's shocking conclusion, he said, Eichmann is in all of us. Now, you may question that. That's a true account. You take it for what it is. The same beast that drove them to commit horrible atrocities in, then, in those days and even today are within all of us. This capacity for great good and great evil. There it is. All of us from time to time have been disappointed in people and have been a disappointment to people who know us. We'd like to draw a line between us and the truly evil people, put them in a category of their own. And yet, from the clear teaching of the Lord Jesus, we cannot do that. Just turn with me to a cross-reference in Mark uh, chapter 7, just a few pages back. Because there's some discussion going on. See what you make of this, just by way of illustration, and then we come to uh, two main points. Mark chapter 7 should come up on the screen uh, before you. Um, It'll come. Mark 7 and verse 14. There's a discussion going on. Okay, I've given you that illustration. And, you, and it would be interesting if we were to go into groups and have a discussion. And within the religious atmosphere and thinking of Jesus' day, the discussion revolved something like this, about how you can be clean, ceremonially clean, religiously clean, and so on. Jesus breaks into this discussion, Mark 7, verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him, quote, unquote, unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. He said that. Now, to be fair, and the disciples, after He'd left the crowd and entered the house. His disciples asked him about this parable. And Jesus wasn't particularly impressed. Are you so dull, he said. Oh, there you are. That's what he said. Are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? Question. For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. The kosher thing. But here's the point. This is what we want. Verse 20. Jesus went on. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. All these evils come from inside a man and make us unclean. The essence of the gospel is this, that we have an internal problem that we cannot cure. And it's little wonder that Jesus would say to one of the most religious men of his day, you must be born again because of this internal problem. So the context then of 
as we come back now to Luke chapter 9. And this is what, that's a long introduction to all of that. Is this, you could not, I don't think I could overemphasize or exaggerate such a serious failure on the part of the 12 disciples. Today, throughout hundreds of churches, when the, the scriptures are read, it will be St. John's Gospel, St. Matthew, St. Luke, and so on. They're saints. Jimmy Savile was going to be made a saint by the Catholic Church. Here are these disciples failing on the most basic point of what it means to follow Jesus. It is calamitous. More so because of the context. What is the context? Look at verse 44. Come back to Luke chapter 9. Here it is. What has Jesus been saying? He says this. Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. I am going to be crucified. And on the third day I will rise again. And this kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world. And their response? And who's going to be the top dog? Uh, something very human in all of us about that. It's staggering. It's extraordinary. But there it is. There it is. All of us from time to time have been disappointed in people. So Jesus is speaking about his supreme sacrifice and they are arguing as to who's the greatest. The contrast then, if it isn't obvious already, with Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice and with the disciples, unbelievable self-centeredness. It's all about me. Who's going to be the greatest? Oh, that's quite extraordinary, isn't it? I, I think so. So let's try to see this now as, if you like, as a mirror of ourselves as much as we can. What is lacking here? And I would like to suggest from the passage, nothing else, just two things. Very simple things, but profound as we take them to heart. As a mirror of ourselves, what's lacking? If you like, you know, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of us all? Here we're asking mirror on the wall, who's the foulest of us all? Is it I? Well, sometimes God's word, and it does say it is like a mirror. And when we see ourselves, there are things that we have to do. So let's look at two things. First of all, what's lacking here is a lack of faith in God's word. Now, that's pretty basic, isn't it? A lack of faith in God's word. He has spoken to them. They've had this amazing experience. A voice, this in verse 35, came out of the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen, my beloved son. Listen to him. Now it may well be, and I'd like to suggest this to you because I had a flashback from um, not long after I became a Christian, 
where people were having quite uh, remarkable experiences of God's Spirit and speaking in tongues and so forth. And they would speak in church and say about their experiences. But in the course of time, it isolated those people who didn't have such experiences. And though you can't judge, it almost seemed that they became proud of what they had. And it may be, think of it, I'm reading into the passage a little. Filter it through if you wish. Why was it Peter, James and John? Why weren't any of them? What's wrong with Matthew? Is Jesus guilty of favoritism? Well, from a human perspective, you might want to ask that. Maybe that's why they're arguing like cat and dog. Either way, those who've had the great experience on the mountain, those who haven't, the one thing that they have in common is there's a lack of faith in God's word. Peter, though, becomes rather preoccupied in wanting to preserve the traditions of the past. You'll remember, don't you? The, the glory of God. Let's build three tabernacles. One for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus. And let's spend time here. This lovely mountain, these lovely people, this lovely place. And you can't help but Jesus says there is a, a different mountain and there will be three different issues. And they won't be booths, they'll be crosses. And Peter can't see it. He wants to preserve the past and think about the glory of God's people as they journey through the wilderness. He wants to hold on to the glory and avoid the suffering. He's got his head in the clouds, but not got his feet on the ground. What's the application? Well, I know it's probably a disappointment, it's not terribly profound, but it is this. Here we are today, and, and it is that we want to take to heart God's word when he speaks to us. Uh, that's my card. It's a master card. It's a premier master card. And it's got Reverend Jeffrey Steadman on it, gilded. I have money in the bank, but this card is of no use. I haven't forgotten the number. I've not been discredited. I'm in personal name terms with the bank manager. I know my PIN number, but it's of no value. Can any of you guess why? Out of date. Yeah, I know it's not okay. Good. Well, don't forget that. You see, there are some, some Christian people who have, have it all together. All their doctrines sorted out and could sniff out a heresy. They, they, they are careful to think in terms of experience. But you know, they don't cut the mustard. They're actually out of date. And can look down on other people. And Peter's not listening to God's word. He's not listening. Uh, I will cut that up, but I thought I, I should show it to you. And my name is good, and I do have a new card. But it is of no value, though it looks terribly impressive, doesn't it? 
you'll meet Christians like that sometimes. So, a lack of faith in God's word. And secondly, a lack of love for one another. Do you argue with God's people? Well, from time to time, I do. Sometimes that's a legitimate thing. We're not Quakers in the sense that we sit quietly. We are evangelical people and we have convictions and we hold them dearly. And sometimes we agree to disagree. Or maybe temperamentally we tend to speak first before engaging our minds and we have to say, I'm sorry. Or we hold on to things because of our background and experience and think everybody should be the same as us. What we have here is a, a, a lack of love for one another. You see it? He's, as we begin, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, as I've brought a, a card here, it's of no value, Jesus brings a, a little child. They had failed with a little child before, now Jesus brings a little child. And says the most profoundest things. He accepts this child, accepts me. He accepts me, accepts the one who sent me, my Father in heaven. And here is another monumental failure that is so absolutely basic. That it's so easy for relationships to be polarized. Because of what people have said or done. Twelve people, twelve disciples who have little time for each other. Well, I don't know if you agree with that. Maybe that's extreme. There's infighting. There's, there's jockeying for position. There's a sense of jealousy. There's favoritism. Does it sound familiar? There's people who don't agree about certain things and go in the half and, and, and stay back and uh, are a bit detached, disengaged. Does that sound familiar? And out of envy and pride, people will not give and will defend a position that is indefensible. Sounds familiar. It may be, as we've hinted already, a, a, a sort of a, a superiority of, of, of um, spiritual experience. This plagued the, the church at, at Corinth. Just turn to uh, one, there you are, 1 Corinthians 1, just to illustrate this. Here's a remarkable church, a very gifted church, the church at Corinth. It's exactly the same thing. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10. Just these three verses. Division in the church. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another. Now, we're not agreeing with each other about what clothes we wear, or political party we vote for, or that sort of thing. Clearly, the context says these are big things, big issues. So that there would be no divisions among you, that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers... Some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. I'm Paul's man. His forensic teaching on justification and so on. Another says, no, 
a policy is so cerebral, so convincing. He could charm the birds of a tree. And the other says, no, no, Peter's the man. He gets things done. He's not a talker. You know, that sort of thing. And finally, an elite group would say, yeah, but I'm of Christ. It's a party spirit. And it's wrong in a most gifted and remarkable church. And if we are consciously guilty of that, we really have to repent of it, as these disciples did. All of us, from time to time, have been disappointed in people and have been a disappointment. We're in good company. If there is a lack of love, a sort of a zero tolerance... then we have to deal with that quickly. And this, this lack of love is seen in an attitude to believers outside their circle. The evangelical church has been plagued by this, more so in the past than now. You see, look, all this is going on. John wants to change the subject. That's what you should do, change the subject. So look at verse 40. Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name who tried, we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Not one of us. There are some groups to this day who say, you know, we are the, we are the exclusives. And they would even say that our narrow position is our calling. And there has developed an, a culture of massive intolerance towards anybody who is not one of us. Now that sort of thing can happen anywhere. A lack of love is seen where believers look at others as outside of the circle. Don't quite, don't quite dot all the I's, cross the T's and so on and so forth. Verses 49 to 50 is a terrible indictment. We are the only people. We are the believers. And I suspect that it's almost linked to who wants to be the greatest. Jesus then and now is not impressed. He is not impressed Such a loveless attitude can raise its ugly head anywhere, anytime, any church, any place, among any leaders. That's why we're here, surely. That's why we're looking at God's Word. Just look at one final reference. Look in the book of Philippians. It's often referred to as a love letter to the church. Well, this is not like the Corinthian church where, you know, they're all infighting. This is a church of love and rejoicing. And the word rejoice is used about 1450. This is a great, this is the church we'd like to belong to. And yet, Philippians 1 and verse 15, look at this. And think of Paul's response to this for people outside of the circle whose experiences are different. Look how magnanimous he is. Verse 15, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. Isn't that amazing? But others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. There was a rumor coming around that Paul's in prison and he deserves it because he's a charlatan and so on and so forth. 
The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? Would it matter to you? What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of that, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. We agree to disagree. And for the greater good, see the impact of God's kingdom coming to people. One final application. It can happen at LCBC. And that's why sermons like this are important. Because you can never prove what you've prevented. But be sure of one thing. Let me close with this. That if God forbid that it did happen here or anywhere, be sure that you are not the conduit for it. Be sure that you are not the instrument through which the devil can stir up trouble and cause division. People are being exceedingly unkind it's to the Apostle Paul. It's like a character assassination. And he says, and what do I think? I will rejoice because Christ is preached. And I will rejoice. And he does. We would have sung in the course of our worship this prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. You, you know it very well. Our people can remember Margaret Thatcher used it when she entered 10 Downing Street. And it hasn't had the same credibility since. We can misuse everything if we want to. But let me read it to you. If we are lacking in faith in God's word, we'll trust his word more. And if there are unresolved and unhealed relationships, as they were with the disciples, or people with a sense of superiority who make you feel guilty, then dig deep into God's love. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Well, you won't have to go very far to come across that, will you? Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Make me to be that sort of person. And I actually don't care if I'm the greatest. Don't care at all. I do care that Christ is preached. And more and more people are experiencing his love. And people's faith is grounded in the truth. What do we really care about? The press will have a field day on Sir Jimmy Savile. And they probably will enjoy it. When it is calamitous for someone to fall, there ought to be something in us that should ache for that, whatever the hypocrisy. And we'd want to say, may it not be true of me, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together.
just a moment to ask for God's help today as he's spoken to us. And in our mind's eye, we can think of relationships that are strained, not only perhaps in church, but in work, where people are always jockeying for position, wanting to be the greatest. In a world where it seems so many bad things continue to happen to good people. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would hear us today and help us. Help us to learn not only from the mistakes of others and indeed what we've read in your word today with the disciples, but through our personal failure to see your guiding hand of grace and love and forgiveness and to rise up to serve you and that all the gifts that we possess material and spiritual are ultimately from you so Lord hear us now fill us once more with your spirit a spirit of love and of power and fill the church again with great grace and renewed energy. So we pray in your name. Amen. Our closing hymn, which brings this theme together.